okay, if this is not asthma, if this is not related to reflux, can it be something else? Can it be a post-nasal drip? Can it be related to some kind of sensory neuropathic cough that has been causing the chronic cough in the patient? In my clinic, what I would do is that I would go not only check for the larynx, but I would also check for the trachea, the upper part of it at least, under local anesthesia. And I would say that it's very, very rare, but I have seen a couple of cases in which there was cancer in the trachea that has been growing in there, causing the cough, and it was missed before. Welcome to BLA Connections, A Clear Voice. Here is another episode of Series 5. I'm your host, Natalie Watson, and I'm delighted to bring you discussions and insights from experts from across the globe on all things laryngology. In today's episode, we explore chronic cough with Professor Ahmed Ganaid. He is an adjunct professor, laryngologist and phoniatrician. He is head of department in Helsinki University Hospital of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. He is currently serving as president of the Finnish Laryngological Society and president of the Union of the European Phoniatricians. Ahmed Ganaid leads a multidisciplinary team dealing with voice and swallowing patients in Helsinki University Hospital, Finland. His main interests are laryngology, phonosurgery and voice therapy. He has a growing number of over 50 publications and lectures regularly on laryngology, phonosurgery and other voice-related topics. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Natalie. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, I would say that it's a very good idea to discuss this topic, tackling on chronic cough. This is one of the most important issues that we face in laryngology and phoniatrics. And I'm really happy to be talking with you about it. Oh, so am I. I think it's going to be a really popular topic. I think it's really relevant to so many different specialties as well as laryngology. So let us begin. Chronic cough. Tell me about it. Chronic cough is one of the most important things that, or let's say, one of the uh, issues that we face when it comes to our laryngology patients and in different ENT clinics around the world. And I would say that we as laryngologists, we usually get the patient at some point when the patient has been already examined for a cough that lasted over eight weeks, asthma has been excluded. And usually the patients are sent to our offices as a way of thinking, okay, if this is not asthma, if this is not related to reflux, can it be something else? Can it be a post-nasal drip? Can it be related to some kind of sensory neuropathic cough that has been causing the chronic cough in the patient? And this is usually the situation that we face in our ENT clinics around the world. So, I mean, chronic cough is really one of the persistent throat symptoms that we see all the time, isn't it? What are the um, common causes of chronic cough? I would say that when I get a patient referred to my clinic with a cough that has been persistent for over eight weeks, then I would try to tackle on the possible reasons or the etiologies, the causes that can be related to chronic cough or causing it. Of course, the first and most important thing is that we excluded the patient has such chronic cough from lung disease. Is it possibly asthma? Is the patient a smoker? Are there any kind of indoor pollutants that are in the patient house or the patient place fork? We usually check if there is some kind of reflux that is behind it. Let us say laryngopharyngeal reflux in this situation. 
And sometimes as well, we tackle on issues like the ACE inhibitors that can, as a neutrogenic effect, side effect of them, cause persistent cough in the patients who are taking them. And of course, one of the most important reasons that we should address, and I would say that this is the reason usually the patient is referred to my clinic, is that the patient has all of the previous things excluded. And right now we are sitting with an idea that it may be sensory neuropathic cough that is causing the chronic cough of the patient. So sensory neuropathic cough, is another name for that laryngeal hypersensitivity causing the chronic cough? Exactly. And this is one of the terminology problems because when you check for the medical literature on it, you would find different terminologies that are being used for that. It can be called idiopathic chronic cough, unexplained chronic cough, chronic refractory cough, or chronic neuropathic cough. And all of them are referring to the same issue here, that we have every other thing that is excluded and we are left with this entity that is usually by exclusion in this situation. Yeah, it's that irritative cough, isn't it? It is. So what that normally dry cough that is is what's sent to us. So what's your particular approach for the workup of cough? That's a very good question because when a patient is referred to my clinic, what I would do is that I would first check that the asthma has been excluded. I would make sure that the sorex x-ray has been taken. If the patient is a smoker, then the patient stops smoking already and that I check the patient medical list or let's say what kind of medication the patient on and to be sure that ACE inhibitors are not in the repertoire of the patient. And if all of this is being done, then I would go with the plan of treatment of the patient. That's leading me really nicely onto what's your treatment algorithm for these chronic coughs. The treatment algorithm, in my opinion, goes with the way that we first have to do video endoscopy of the patient. In my clinic, what I would do is that I would go not only check for the larynx, but I would also check for the trachea, the upper part of it at least, under local anesthesia. And I would say that it's very, very rare, but I have seen a couple of cases in which there was cancer in the trachea that has been growing in there, causing the cough, and it was missed before. And I would always advise when you have a patient with chronic cough that you check that you can see down to the level of the carina, down to the level of the bifurcation for the bronchi. Because in this way, you can do that with local anesthesia, putting the local anesthesia on the vocal folds and the subglottal level, like below the vocal folds, can make you sure that you will have a very good vision and you will be able to go with the video endoscopy down and make sure that there is nothing there. I think that's the major thing, isn't it? I think this is the, the big shift that in, definitely in my practice that I've included in my reviews for cough is actually to to explore the trachea as well. And I think now with uh, lots of in-office procedures being done, I think well, we're just so used to applying lots of local anaesthetic to this area to have a really good view. It's not something that routinely people do in ENT clinics but coming to a complex cough laryngology clinic, you know, in a tertiary centre, it can obviously be done anywhere. It doesn't need to be done in, you know, big university hospitals. It can be done in the more district general hospitals or smaller hospitals in other countries. And I think this is a good, important 
point to labour on just to say how we would actually approach applying the local anaesthetic for someone who needs a tracheoscopy through the vocal cords? One of the things is that let us assume that you have a patient coming to your clinic with, let's say, six months of chronic cough. Every other thing has been excluded. So what I would do is that I would take a channel video endoscope and go through the nose to the level of the larynx first, check that everything in the larynx is, looks nice to me, and then through the channel, I would go dribbing 4% lidocaine on the vocal folds while the patient is phonating, for example, saying along E. And while the patient is doing that, I would tell the patient, okay, now you will feel that there is some kind of water or some kind of fluid going into the wrong direction. And what I would like you to do is to continue the sound E into gurgling sound. So the idea here is that to make the lidocaine 4% on the level of the vocal folds, and then I would do by intention drop a few drops as well in the trachea. And the patient, of course, will cough during that examination. But the idea is that cough here is a good thing during the examination because it will help to disseminate the anesthesia on the tracheal wall, on the vocal folds, and on the larynx. And then I would go and take a dip in the trachea while the patient is breathing and not phonating, so while the glottis is open. I would recommend that we do this for patients who come with chronic cough, let us say, for up to two or three years. But if you have a patient coming with chronic cough that has been there for 10 years, then probably there is nothing there in the trachea because it is probably just some kind of fatigue symptom that has been with the patient for 20 years. But in different situations in which the patient is coming after six months of the beginning of chronic cough, one year, two years, I would go have uh, the anesthesia being done, go check for the trachea and make sure that there is no cerebrosis down there. Yeah. I think it's I think it's worthwhile. The other things that we use in our clinic are using the magic device, the atomizer device, with you know any type of lidocaine through the um, syringe, and ask them to say E and dribble that down. Also, what we have used is something called the Traco spray for those people who've got a really bad gag reflex. And actually, sometimes because they've got such an irritable larynx, their gag reflex is heightened. And therefore, the Traco spray has been really useful. So it's a device where you put into the mouth and they clench it between their teeth. And you, every time they breathe in, they raise their hand to say that they're breathing in at that same time. And you push the plunger through as they're breathing in so that they can inhale the lidocaine that way. So there's a number of different ways of doing it, even if you don't have a channeled endoscope. There are some adjunctive things that you can do to go transorally. Moving on from there, so we've eliminated tracheal pathology. We think it's an irritable larynx. We think it's laryngeal hypersensitivity. How do you approach actually treating this hypersensitivity? Usually the patient being referred to a laryngologist means that the patient already has all of the different other etiologies excluded, including laryngopharyngeal reflux. And I would say that the patient, when he is referred or when she is referred to my clinic, usually she had a reflux medication for over two months as a trial. So I know that this has been already excluded. And I would say that many of them had already a gastroscopy being done. 
So I'm right now in a phase in which I know that I'm right now addressing a chronic neuropathic cough and irritable larynx or hypersensitive larynx. And I would think of explaining the reason first to the patient, like I would go with the patient to the time when it started. And usually the patients remember somehow that there was some kind of an upper respiratory tract infection or even COVID-19 infection after which it started. And despite that all of the other symptoms of the upper respiratory tract infection subsided, but still the cough is there. So I would expect that in this situation, there has been some kind of over-sensitivity of the internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. In other words, that there's some situation in which the nerve is telling the brain all the time that there is an irritation that is happening inside, and the patient is just reacting by the way that the reflex, like the evolution is telling her or him to be cuffing. And I would go through a number of different options. So one of the options, for example, is to try amitriptyline for the patient. What I do is that I usually start with about 10 milligrams per day. And I would advise the patient to take that during the evening. One of the nice things about it is that I would say that 100% of the patients would say to me that they sleep much better with it. But of yes. course, only, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's magic when it comes to sleeping, but unfortunately, it's not when it comes to chronic cough. I would say that 50 to 60% would be gaining benefit from it. And such medications like amitriptyline, gabapentin, they have been tested before in different resources, and they have uh, proved to be a good option for chronic cough, but unfortunately, not for everyone. So you would have patients that, you know, like feel a little bit or maybe too much tired, exhausted with amitriptyline, despite the fact that it is only 10 milligrams. One of the things that come to my mind, which is very important, is that I would also talk with the patient about the fact that amitriptyline was used long time ago as a depression medication, but no longer anyone is using it. There are much better uh, medications for depression. And I would, I would take that when I'm talking to the patient because I'm afraid that when the patient is just checking on you know, what is written in the papers inside the medication and reads that it has been used for depression, then the patient would think that I'm, I'm giving him uh, a medication for depression when in fact I'm just giving a medication to lower the sensitivity of the nervous system here, especially tackling on the internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. There are other options that I would take into consideration. Usually, the two main options that are quite relevant for the patient, one of them is to have a speech therapist guidance. That means that I have a couple of speech language therapists in my office who are mainly dealing with cough patients. So they will have about four to five meetings with the patient in which they give certain uh, maneuvers that the patient may use to overcome cough. And of course, there is always the third option, which is to go for a cortisone lidocaine injection, like dipomidrol, for example, in the insertion of the internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve on both sides. And I would say that these main three ways, the medical one, amitriptyline, gabapentine, the speech therapist guidance, and the vibomedrol injections, these are the main items for the management of chronic neuropathic cough.
Brilliant. Now, I think if I was asking my speech and language therapy colleagues, they would advise a sniff, sniff, blow, blow. Sniff, sniff, blow, blow. A bit like when they do uh, for inducible laryngeal obstruction to just try and overcome that cough or take a nice sip of water at the time and just try and do a deep swallow just to try and overcome the cough urge. Do you know of any other exercises that your speech and language therapists usually use? Actually, you probably mentioned them all, and I would say that they do work if the patients remember them and has a way of keeping in mind that, okay, now the coughing is coming on, I'm having this feeling of irritation, I'll be going to cough, then I would go for drinking a sip of water, I would go for a deep swallowing while having the chin tuck position. All of these maneuvers will help much. And, and one of the most important things is the visual feedback that we give to the patient while we are examining the patient's larynx, that the patient is satisfied with the fact that there is nothing there, and then the patient is accepting the fact, okay, this is a hypersensitive situation, and we should tackle on that. And of course, there is no reason to use only one method. You can use the speech therapist guidance in addition to the dipometrol injection or in addition to the amitriptyline as well. It's one thing that I think laryngologists have in their armamentarium is that biofeedback mechanism because we are so privileged to be able to show patients their larynxes and to show them how good they look. You know, it gives them some reassurance that with the hypersensitive larynx, actually, there's nothing physically that you can see easily wrong. There's no lumps or bumps. There's no big lump that's causing them to to cough. And actually, that in itself can be very reassuring, I found. Exactly. And one last way to do that or to tackle on this issue in our armamentarium here is that if we have tried these three options, we have tried the amitriptyline, the depomedrol, the speech and language therapist guidance in this situation, then one additional way, which in my opinion is the last way, is to have Botox injections in the vocal folds for the patients who have chronic cough that is not reacting at all to all of the previous misses. And for these patients, of course, we have to address the fact that Botox, botulinum toxin, will have a side effect on the voice of the patient for about two to three weeks after the injection. However, I would recommend that we start with the three other options, and if the patient is not reacting, then we can go forward to have botulinum injection in the vocal folds. Now, I want to just focus um, just very briefly like we did with the local anaesthetic, about the techniques of giving that Depomedrol injection. We're getting more and more familiar with in-office procedures. So presumably you do these in-office. Exactly. And uh, without anesthesia. So it's it's very quick procedure to be done for the patient. So we'd prepare the larynx just as we would doing a tracheoscopy, dribbling some lidocaine, around the area of pagotic folds this time and the vocal cords just so that the whole area of the larynx is presumably numb? Uh, actually, what I do is, is a little bit different. So if, if I have a patient coming for debometrol injection in the internal branch of the spirolaryngeal nerve, the patient will just lie flat on the bed with the head 
tilted to the back a little bit in the extension position. And then I would go from the outside without applying any anesthesia in the inside of the larynx. I would go from the outside, palpating for two main landmarks. The first one is the back end of the hyoid bone. And the second landmark is the superior coronal of the thyroid cartilage. And between them and to a little bit to the front is the exact place of the internal branch of the spirulinergic nerve. And then I would go with the dipomedrol. Let us say that we have 25G needle or 24G needle. Go there, have the dipomedrol injected, and that's all. The one trick that is important to apply here is not to go too deep and not to go too, uh, too superficial because if you go too deep, you'd go and actually go inside and that would provoke uh, an intense bout of cough. If you go too superficial, then you may end up with uh, very rarely side effects on the skin of the patient, on the skin of the neck of the patient in this situation. Right. Now, how much do you inject? And this is in, in the UK, this is methyl prednisolone injection. It's exactly like this. And per side, I would inject 80 milligrams missile prednisolone acetate and 20 milligram lidocaine hydrochloride. So this is a total of two milliliter, which sounds a little bit uh, like a huge volume. But in fact, I, I would say that it makes me sure that what I'm injecting is going to end around the nerve. And how long does it take for you to find an effect from that injection? What the patients say is that immediately, like just within one minute after the injection, the patient would report to you that there is some kind of a feeling of lump in the throat. And some patients have this feeling that swallowing is a little bit difficult. And that would be there for about two hours, sometimes more. And usually what I do is that I would call the patient back in about three weeks and ask, how is it going? Some patients would say, yeah, they noticed an effect. And then if that effect is uh, like 100%, then I'm really happy. And I would say that I do see some wonderful, even surprising effects in certain patients who didn't have chronic cough for too long. Let us say that patients who had chronic cough for only six months after COVID-19 or patients who had uh, a chronic cough for six months after, after upper respiratory tract infection, they are the ones that react in a marvelous way. And of course, those that react in in, in in less positive way are those who had the chronic cough for like three years, four years. What I want to know now is have you ever done an endoscopic injection of the sensory innovation of the larynx? So doing injecting on the areopagotic fold for the superior laryngeal nerve? Uh, no, uh, I, I didn't do that. It's technically quite possible. And I would say that I guess one of the colleagues have been doing it, but uh, I, I didn't do that, assuming that it's easier to do that from the outside, around the nerve, from the part from which it leaves from the larynx upwards. So, I mean, I haven't 
done it in my practice, but um, having just been to the ELS, there were some colleagues that were talking about endoscopic approach. So that is also a possibility. From listening to them, it sounded as if they looked, found the area apoplectic fold. They would use the same injections, but they would prepare the larynx as you would with any laryngoscopy and have an intraoral, transoral, or a channeled endoscopic injection kind of just lateral to the area apoplectic fold, well, in the area apoplectic fold to, to hit the superior uh, laryngeal nerve that way. So just an alternative if, if the external did not uh, appeal to you. So we have our treatment algorithm. We have some speech and language therapy. We have some medications that we can use for this irritable larynx. And we've also got some surgical intervention where we are injecting and treating some inflammation and resetting the superior laryngeal nerve to try and give the brain some feedback to say that it's not under threat. And so are there any other remedies on the horizon? There was one that was being planned to be available. And unfortunately, the company that was actually planning on it and developing it, decided to stop the pipeline in terms of this medication. So I, I really would say that as far as I know, right now, there are no new medications that are becoming on our side for the treatment and management of chronic cough. Right. Well, we shall just have to wait and see. I'm sure there are other medications out there that may be being trialed. And maybe it would be quite nice to get some a respiratory doctor to come and have a chat as well and see about their perspective of chronic cough from their point of view and what they have to do to kind of eliminate everything else before they send it over to us. That would be fantastic. Well, any final words from you, Ahmed? One final word when it comes to the patients with chronic cough, and this is actually something that is very interesting. We do see chronic cough more among women than men. Yeah. And I would attribute that to the evolution. And actually, it was examined that women do have a lower threshold for cough in comparison to men. And I would say in this situation that probably women are more ahead in terms of the evolution than men. So probably it has developed with the ability to be pregnant and protecting against aspiration while during pregnancy. And that's why women do have more, let's say, hypersensitive cough problems in comparison to men. And that's a very interesting thing to, to explain why do we have such representation. And one thing as well that for the listeners, it is quite normal during upper respiratory tract infection to have cough. And this is unfortunately part of the deal, because this is a way in which we can make sure that our lungs and our larynx, they are clearing all of the mucus there. And but by time, it will go down. And if it doesn't go down, then in this time, we just have to wait. If it goes for over eight weeks, then this is a situation of chronic cough for the patient and should be tackled upon as how we discussed it. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experience of managing chronic cough from the laryngology perspective. Thanks a lot, Natalie. That was really fantastic discussion. Thanks to you.
Well, thank you. And I want to leave by just reminding everyone that we have our next BLA joint with UEP meeting on the 14th of September in London, England. If anybody wants to join for the fantastic programme we have in store, focusing on all the major aspects of laryngology, airway, swallow, neurolaryngology and voice, it would be fantastic to see you there. Ahmed, you'll be joining us? Yes, for sure. And I will be very happy to be there in the first inaugural joint meeting between the BLA and the UAP. It will be a fantastic one with different topics addressing the most important ones in laryngology and phoniatrics. And of course, it's open to laryngologists, phonetricians, speech and language therapists, voice coaches and acousticians. Everyone is invited. Absolutely. It's going to be relevant to all. So thank you so much. We hope you have enjoyed listening to BLA Connections, A Clear Voice. I have been your host, Natalie Watson. Please do tune in this series for more laryngology topics. We would also love to hear from you. Please feel free to email with any topics you would like us to explore, any questions you have, along with any suggested experts you would like to hear from. Also, if you would like to contribute to these podcasts, please email inquiries at britishlaryngological.org. Our full series can be found in the podcast provider of your choice, or you will find all stored on our BLA Connect app for easy access. Thank you to all our listeners, and we hope you found our podcast informative. Please remember to subscribe and do leave a review with your podcast provider. We do appreciate your likes, subscribes, and reviews.